please turn also to the Old Testament. The text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. This is the reading of God's holy word. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. Behold, what have I seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Almighty God, we thank you, Father, for your word indeed is truth and your warnings, Father, uh, that we should heed. Father, we acknowledge how much it is that the things that we see with our eyes, the lust of the eyes, and Father, we pray that you would guard us, that we would have contentment in our hearts, and we acknowledge how rare this gift of yours is, this gift of contentment. Father, we pray that we would not commit this sin of idolatry, of covetousness, of uh, worshiping and desiring and loving wealth, but instead, Father, that we would trust that your provision is always perfect, generous, sufficient for our needs. Father, help us to acknowledge that however much or little we have, in this life, every one of us will leave it behind. Father, we pray that we might, in this life, find the greatest treasure, the pearl of great price, who is Jesus Christ. And may he be our true hope. May we cling to him with every ounce of our being. For indeed, he is our hope for eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. And Father, we pray that if any are here who do not know Jesus in such a way... Father, we pray that you might do a mighty work, that your Holy Spirit would take away hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh. Father, we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. John Davidson Rockefeller was America's first billionaire. He was America's first billionaire when there were very, very, very few millionaires. And if you compare the money, he is far richer than Elon Musk. 
he is far richer than the, the former CEO of Amazon, whose name I don't even remember right now. But you look at the type of uh, the type of attitude that he had. It was because of Rockefeller that the U.S. government came up with antitrust laws. That he would go to a local business, I think Standard Oil, so he, he was in the kerosene business, and he would go to a regional uh, competitor, and he would offer them fair market value for their business. And the owner of the business would say, hey, listen, this, this business has been in my family for generations. I, I cannot sell. And he says, okay, no problem. So then he would, because of his relationship with the railroads, he would move in uh, the product from a different place and sell it at a huge loss to himself, which he absorbs, he makes profit elsewhere. And he would compete with this regional uh, competitor until the man is completely out of business. And then he'd come back and say, I'll offer you a tenth of what I offered you earlier. And the guy would say, thank you very much. And he'd kill him, business-wise. This is why he, the government created these antitrust laws. So he was, he was a cutthroat man. And there was once a person who asked him, because he had so much wealth, he asked Mr. Rockefeller, how much wealth is enough? And his answer was so insightful, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And if this wealthy man, who is perhaps the wealthiest man in America, in American history, could say that with all his wealth, he needed just a little bit more, then perhaps we can conclude right then and there, more wealth will never be enough. But you know what? We have in the word of God that warning, even in this passage, that wealth, he who loves wealth, will never be satisfied with wealth. Nothing will ever be enough if you love money. And when you think about how if we start polling common Americans, the answer is very similar. Just 15% more, just 20% more, and that will be enough. But spending almost always rises to meet or exceed income, and at which point you're left with another 10, 15, 20% more is what you need. So I hope you can see here that the warnings are significant, that we ought to be careful with our eyes because we desire the things that we see. When we look at this passage in Ecclesiastes, toward the end of it in verses 18 to 20, we have one of these moment of clarity passages. We, we see it come up various times. Several times uh, the author of Ecclesiastes has these moment of clarity passages. So Ecclesiastes, the author, is discussing life under the sun. Life that's uh, imperfect due to the fall. And on one hand, the author speaks about general revelation. And he speaks about what he sees. You notice here he even says in verse 18, what I have seen to be good. So here he's making conclusions based on observation, based on what his experience has brought him to. But there's also the matter of special revelation. And that the author is trying to point us to there is a limit to, which what we, to, to that which we may attain and understand by general revelation. When we merely observe the patterns, observe the suffering, observe the pain, there's only a limit to what we can conclude. Special revelation is needed. And if we ever begin with the thought that there is no God, and then we observe life, the end will be vanity, meaninglessness. And here he addresses this matter regarding wealth. Earlier in chapter 5, the author addresses the matter, the needed and the timely reminder about the importance of drawing near to God for worship. And here in these passages, he addresses the matter of corruption in government, and there is actually a relation to, to what he talks about afterwards in 10 through 17, verses 10 through 17, because here the common root is that covetousness is the root of of corruption, and that covetousness is actually present in your heart and mine. And that after all of those things are dealt with, he says, 
The gift of God, of enjoyment, of contentment. Boy, that, that is a treasure indeed. So the truth that we see in this passage, condemn not corruption and rulers when the same covetous root exists in you. So guard against all forms of it. Condemn not corruption and rulers when the same covetous root exists in you. So guard against all forms of it. We'll look at this in three points. The first, covetousness manifested above you. Second, covetousness, covetousness manifested within you. And third, God's precious gift of enjoyment. So the first point, covetousness manifested above you in verses 8 and 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. <clears throat> Here, we have in this version the usage of these terms. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and violation of justice, perhaps we can say that uh, maybe the, the words chosen aren't the best. Uh, what, what we're talking about is not some type of a general oppression or violation of justice, like the taking of life, but rather financial things. It's not so much oppression as it is extortion. So extortion is, uh, is using threats or intimidation to force some type of financial payment. And it's not so much violation of justice, but rather pillaging or robbery. Robbery that comes from office, a requirement, a, a taking by force. And here, perhaps you ask, well, what is the point? Why are you making this distinction? Well, the distinction is that we're getting to something here. There's a pattern in what uh, Kohelet, the, the author, is saying. And the the corruption that exists within office, he wants you to see that it's easy the point up top, the people above you far up the totem pole, and say there's corruption there. But the author wants you to see that the same root of that corruption was actually, which is actually covetousness, this exists within our own hearts. And that's right here, down below. In the second part of verse 8, he says, do not be amazed at the matter. Do not be amazed at the matter. So don't be amazed when you see it or hear it, that in government, it's no surprise when there is some type of corruption, that someone is using his office to advance his own covetous desires. It, it seems like every time you open uh, the, the, uh, your your portal, your net portal, or you open the newspaper, it seems like there's some kind of report being made about how there's corruption and embezzlement in the Chicago and the Illinois politicians. I, I don't know, maybe that's just me, I, I see that, but then, then you look elsewhere and then the same thing is said about New York politicians and California politicians. So maybe that tells you something, California, Illinois, New York. And this shouldn't be any kind of surprise that if someone has covetousness within their hearts and they're given power along with it. So covetousness plus power equals corruption and extortion. Is, is, this, is this something that should surprise us? The old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Or, or greater power leads to greater corruption. And here, we're not saying, I'm not saying, nor is, nor is the, the scripture saying that uh, we ought to condone corruption or extortion or robbery in office in any way. This is, not, this is not condoning that. But rather it's saying that the sad results of that type of corruption in office is the result of covetousness within someone's heart. The hierarchical system. He uses the description don't be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. 
And normally when we think about a hierarchical system or a separation of power, we think about checks and balances, that this is normally a good thing when you have people who are above others, that they have to answer to someone else. But somehow, part of the corruption is that, uh, you know, it goes right up the food chain so that those higher-ups get bigger cuts and bigger payouts. I recall when I was doing uh, work overseas that, uh, that there, for these multinational companies, there was some type of understanding that within these foreign budgets, gift money had to be built in. And by that, I mean, in order for things to get done, they had to give gift money, what we would call here bribes, because that's how the world works. And so we see that as the higher ups go, the bigger their cuts get. And then in verse 9, very interesting statement made. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. There's disagreement around what is being said in these two verses. But it seems as if the author is saying, okay, we admit that whenever there's power, there's likely going to be some corruption. At the end of the day, though, what you have is if a ruler is committed to cultivated fields, if he's committed to the productivity of a nation, generally that's good. He may pocket a lot of that, but so long as he's trying to get the people to be active and do work, cultivated fields, that this is a, a good thing. So, so here, when you think about a land, anytime a people are active, the, the general principle is people who are idle are going to get into trouble. They're going to get into mayhem, and that's a bad thing. When we look at the various rulers that come, that new rulers come, that they promise to be far better than the previous rulers, but at the end of the day, are any of them not filthy rich? That you look at previous rulers, that they had dynasties, that family lines, dynasties in democratic systems. And here, when you think back, Jesus said these very words, that rulers will lord it over their people, but they will insist that they be called benefactors. Meaning that you'll have tyrants, dictators, tyrants who come in, who rule their people with an iron fist and take life, spill blood with not a thought. But yet they will be saying, no, no, you ought to call me your benefactor. I'm actually working for your good. And what, what might happen here is that we're led to some type of cynicism, some kind of doubt about rulers. And from a worldly standpoint, there's no other option. But understand that in God's design, we have in Jesus Christ one who has all authority and power. He possesses all wealth. Yet he came, and he came appearing like a pauper. But he is the owner of everything. And you ask, you ask, what was Jesus willing to take in the exercise of authority? Perhaps a better question is, what was Jesus willing to give in his exercise of authority? There's something that Jesus is that no one in the world has. First off, Jesus is sinless. He is perfect. He is holy. And he took upon himself human flesh so that he might live the perfect life on behalf of sinners and die the very death you and I deserve to die. And as we think about our time in this world... That we hear that and we ought to say, this is nowhere to be found. How many rulers would there be if they themselves were ill and needed a kidney or a heart or an organ of some sort in order to live? 
that they would take it by force from the common people. But yet, in Jesus Christ, the Heavenly Father demonstrates His goodness in that you and I, the paupers, the rebels, the very thing we lack, that of righteousness, He freely gives to us. And it cost Him the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. Nowhere do we find this in the world. It's only in God's plan. It's only in the good news of the gospel that you have such generous, such holy, such righteous actions and offers. Jesus alone is our hope for forgiveness. And we receive that good news by faith. Believe upon this good news. Trust in it. And realize that there's nothing that you or I can do to add to his righteousness. So this is the first point, covetousness manifested above you. We have in verses 10 through 17, the second point, covetousness manifested within you. I'll I'll begin by reading verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So begin by giving the caveat that money is amoral. Money in itself is amoral. There's there's a neutrality to money. So that money is not actually evil. In fact, as, as men have made it, money is actually a good thing. Because if we didn't have money, then we would be in a bartering system. So if, if children, you've, you've ever played that game of Settlers of Catan, you think about, well, was there brick, there's wood, there's wheat, there's sheep. I think, I think those are the elements or, or the, uh, the, the, the items that you need. And you think about there was these days where, hey, I have brick and I need wood. And then you know, one of your opponents says, I have wood, but I don't need brick. Well, then you have a problem because what you have, a surplus of, they don't need. And so money is a good thing. Money is a good thing because if you trade certain things, you barter certain things, some of those things might actually be perishable. You might have to trade uh, your A to get B, but you don't want B, you want D. And then the, the chain goes on. So, so money is actually a good thing. And it's a horrible misquote when people say that money is the root of all evil. Because money's not. Money's amoral. It's neutral. It's rather the love or the worship of money that is a sin. It's the love of money, the worship of it, that is sin. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. <clears throat> Jesus also warns, Luke 12:15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So we have the warning proper there in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. So the very warning that we're giving, we're given here, is that more of it will not satisfy. If money is a good thing, more of it is not a better thing. That if it doesn't come with the gift of contentment that God gives, then more money is actually a worse thing. It merely whets your appetite to desire more. Uh, A friend of mine was telling me a story about how American companies went overseas. And this was sometime probably in the when when Sears Roebuck was still in business and still giving out catalogs. But here they came up with contracts, ways to understand how to uh, motivate people. So they went to the locals, the cost of labor was cheaper, and they got the locals to work. And they wanted them to work a five-day work week, but 
the locals would only work two days out of the five days because they, they said that uh, we don't need more than, than two days worth of pay. We don't need the five days worth of pay, so let's, let's just work two days. And they tried to explain it. Well, you had a contract. You signed a contract to work five days. We don't need it. We're, we have more than plenty in just two days. And then the management came up with this. On one hand, you can say it's very practically brilliant, but it was devious. They came up with this idea that uh, we will distribute Sears Roebuck catalogs to our employees. And after they started looking through the catalogs, not only them, their spouses, their children, and then they started wanting these things, started buying these things. And then, surprisingly, they instead... They weren't just working two days, they were working five days. And you see how this works. The more results in more, the appetite for more. And the warning here is not merely for the wealthy. That you don't have to be wealthy in in order to, to have this bug, this corruption from covetousness. That even the person who is poor can have a love of money. And this is, this is something that we ought to watch for. Now, perhaps some of you are wondering, <clears throat> do you, do I have this love of money within us? Well, here are a few heart-searching tests for you. Questions that you ought to ask yourself. First question whom do you credit with your existing wealth? Whom do you credit with for your existing wealth? Did you earn it yourself? And on the one hand, we can say that that's, that's true. But on the other hand, how quick are we to forget that it's God who gives us every single penny that we have? It's true of the believer. It's true of the unbeliever. If anyone has any wealth, God has distributed it to them. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Here God's warning is, when your flocks increase, when your herds increase, everything that you have have increases. Then he says, you will become proud. And you will say, my power and the might of my hand have gotten this wealth. So who do you credit with your existing wealth? Second question. Are you content with what you have now? Perhaps another way to ask this is, are you able to make do with what you have? Or are you giving the answer, just a little bit more? Especially in our nation, in our society, it seems as if very few people uh, are actually living in poverty. And maybe there are many that we don't know of who are living in poverty, but the bulk of the people, we have so much more than other people in other countries that this idea of just a little bit more is not needed for anyone in order to be uh, to have a, a viable life. Second Corinthians chapter nine verse eight, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things. At all times, you may abound in every good work. So here, this sufficiency is provided for us by our God. The third question, how willing are you to share your wealth? How willing are you to share your wealth? This consists of many things. First and foremost, consists of being generous with the Lord. When we start to think of our wealth as our own and not His, then we find ourselves 
particularly unwilling to give to the Lord. If it seems like, wow, you know, I'm so reluctant to, to give to the Lord, then perhaps there's a bug that's within us, this seed of covetousness. When you see your brother in need and there's an unwillingness to lend or to give, then perhaps that, that bug of covetousness has bitten us. John Owen provided a good test regarding covetousness in the heart. He had said, what do you think about before you fall asleep at night? And what do you think about when you first awake? If it is, if it is wealth, if it is what you do to make your living, then perhaps this covetousness has bitten you. You think about the things that keep us up at night. Those are our fears. You think about the things that drive us when we wake up in the morning. Those are our loves. And your loves and your fears will determine your obedience. And when we start talking about those three things, loves, fears, and obedience, what we're actually talking about is worship. Love, fear, and obey your God. But if we're loving uh, money, and we're fearing the loss of it, and we're obeying, we're doing what it takes and what we need to do in order to earn it, omitting what God has given us, what he's told us to do, then there is worship involved. So this covetousness is nothing other than idolatry. It's easy to look at people and say, you know what, those people are idolaters. They worship the Baals. They worship the Krishnas. They worship uh, the Asherahs. But Jesus, in his word, had said, you cannot serve God well. That there is an idol, perhaps the most common idol, and that is wealth. Here, the author of Ecclesiastes gives several pitfalls. He describes the pitfalls regarding wealth. And here, he's attempting to warn you, saying, I've given you the rule in verse 10. Now consider the pitfalls so that you don't fall into them. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So the rule here, the more you have, the more others will take. The more you have, the more others will take. So you look at everyone gets his cut. <clears throat> if it's crops, you have locusts, you have uh, mold, you have mites, and all the little critters, the mice that, that eat it. Well, if it's any other form of wealth, all wealth, it seems like the government has to have their cut. This is going back to verses 8 and 9 about uh, what the government does. They take their cut. And when you think about God's warning, God's warning to Israel in 1 Samuel, when they asked for a king, he warned them saying, and this king will take 10%. What a reality check there. How many of you pay more than 10% in total taxes? <laughs> if you add up the percentages for state, for federal, for sales, for income, for property, right? That's a whole lot more than 10% that you're paying. But he was, supposed to, he was trying to shock the people, 10% will be huge. That is, he's saying that the king will take as much as what God has required of his people. And this is, this is something that should shock. Then you, have the, then you have the matter regarding children wanting their inheritance. How sad it is. Children, you think about your relationship with your siblings. And perhaps you fight over things. When you play games, oh, he cheated, no, she did. And you fight, and at the end of the day... You love your sister or your brother. Those are all good things. May that continue. May that life, may that simplicity of life uh, 
may the, the naivete about life continue in that way. But you realize, as your parents get older, and, and then they die, and then you look at your siblings, and somehow the love that you had for them changes because you think they're trying to take more than what mom and dad had for her or him in the will. And there's a fight. And then families don't talk to one another. How, how sad that is. That you look at verse 12 or verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And the wealthier, the wealthier mom and dad were, it seems like the worse off it is for the family that they leave behind. In fact, if, if mom and dad were, were penniless, that, that children had to chip in to pay for the funeral, to pay for the gravesite, in many ways, that would be a blessing compared to the tooth and nail fighting over the inheritance that gets left behind. Then you look at verse 12. Verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. <clears throat> Here, you think about when someone is tired. There's different drives. If you're hungry and you're tired, you will sleep before you eat, generally. And the description here is that the laborer, he does a lot of work with his hands and with his body. So he's had a lot of exercise, a lot of sweat, sun exposure. So after his day, whether he's eaten a lot or eaten a little, he's tired. And he has a good night's rest. But for the rich person, they didn't have to work. They weren't out in the sun. They weren't having to sweat. And they eat this huge meal of, of uh, you know, very expensive and fatty foods. And we're told that part of his curse is that he's unable to sleep. The indigestion keeps him up at night. And there you see how simple, how simple things are. The contentment of the poor man, the laborer, who does his work and then is able to sleep a good night's sleep. And then that's not even talking about all the other things that come with wealth. Well, is someone going to break in and steal? Is, uh, is there value? How, how do I maintain the value of my retirement? The economy is so iffy. I think about how even in the church, how ministers, some of them, are working until their late 60s, into their 70s, and uh, they basically work until they die. And then you ask, well, what work is left for the young men who come in? So bad economy, to some degree, is, is bad for the church. It requires uh, openings uh, for, for men to do work and to serve Christ's church. Here also, we have in verse 13, the danger of wealth hoarded. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. That someone hoards wealth. <clears throat> when you think about this show, this TV show, Hoarders. Now, for the most part, it seems like the hoarders there are hoarding junk. I haven't, I haven't watched it, but I looked at some of the, the reviews and, and the synopsis. But uh, some of them are hoarding junk and, and cats and feces and whatever it is. Some of them are hoarding expensive things. But, but the bottom line is that the reason why that show seems to be so popular is so that it's called the better than thou syndrome. Hey, I have a hoarding issue, but that person has it worse. <laughs> they feel better about themselves. But the bottom line is the hoarding. That we're told these people are cursed. That this is a grievous evil. Because it goes back to that, that rule in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. So you think about toys. Children, if you have one toy, is two toys better? And if you kept buying so that you eventually have 50 toys, 
or 5,000 toys. From 5,000, if you got 5,001, will that next one satisfy? And I think what the rule that the scriptures are telling you here is that next one won't satisfy regardless of how many you have. So what ought we to do? Perhaps what we ought to say is, whatever you have, begins by saying, I will be content with what the Lord has given me. The desire to say, I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep struggling. I'm going to keep striving because that next one will satisfy me. Well, the answer is, it's not going to. Experience shows that it won't. Instead, what we ought to say is, let me be content with what I have. There's also in verse 14, the fleeting nature of wealth. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Proverbs 23, verse 5, describes this principle. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. So children, the description is that wealth is like a bird. Whether small or big, it sprouts wings and it flies away. It's here today and tomorrow it's gone. You can't count on it. And that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the warning there is not to set your heart and your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Ultimately, our hope is in God. It's not that I save enough for my retirement. It's, is God going to provide for me? That we can't think mechanistically. We have this, that we're fine. It's, are we trusting in God to provide for us? There's also verse 15 and 16. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is the reminder that however wealthy or however poor you are, nobody takes any of it with him. Whether to heaven or to hell, it doesn't go with you. It remains here. Naked, we were born naked, we will go. We leave it all behind. And that truth should affect how we live. It should affect how we live and the decisions that we make every day. Verse 17, the final pitfall is, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. When you think about all the trouble that wealth brings, have you ever met someone who lost a significant fortune? He had a whole lot of money, and it was completely lost. Chances are, you will never hear the end of it. Meaning, as you meet this person, as you talk to them, five years, ten years, fifty years later, they're probably going to tell you, keep, they'll, they'll keep bringing this up about how they had it all and they lost it. How sad that is. There's darkness, much vexation, sickness, and an anger. Perhaps all the fear, the doubt, leads to sickness, the worry. can lead to sickness. Health issues come up. Perhaps betrayals from friends, uh, people at work, that leads to anger. And all of that results in great sadness. And this is where the scriptures talk about for those who have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So, what are some practical things that we ought to think of when we think about wealth and the love of wealth? <clears throat> First is, be careful not to point the finger at someone else and miss the three fingers that are pointing back at you. Meaning, it's true that someone sitting next to you may have just a bit of covetousness, but you realize that you and I, ourselves, may also have it. It might be true for your neighbor, but it could also be true for you. 
So much of the world comes up with these ideas. Just because the scriptures say that the rich ought to be willing to share with those in need. It never once says that the poor have the right to demand of the rich a share of their, of their goods. That's not true at all. There's, there's a willingness that the rich are called to share their goods willingly, gladly. But never can the world say, hey, what you, the rich, have, we will take by force or by demand. And along with that comes judgment or shaming. That one of the ways that Satan robs us of joy is that he allows us to possess shame. Well, you have these things. You should feel ashamed that you have them. We don't have that in the scriptures. God gives us things, and he says that they are for our enjoyment, that we ought to enjoy it, that we ought to be willing to share it with others. There's also the warning that abundant wealth is no sure sign of God's favor. Abundant wealth is no sure sign of God's favor, meaning that if, if you've made all kinds of sacrifices to your service of God, to your loyalty to God, but it's produced all kinds of financial gain. You can't justify the, the lack of loyalty to God by the financial gain, saying, hey, this, this must be good. God must be pleased with it because I've gotten all this wealth. And the way we know this is because when you look at the richest people in the world today, are they actually believers? Or are they actually very violent and defiant against the Almighty God? Are they atheists? Are you able to stop desiring for more right now and be content with what God has given you? Whether it be dollars in the bank or your investments or your retirement, whether it be toys in your toy box, whether it be shoes in, in your closet, whatever it is, are you able to say, I'm going to be content with what the Lord has given me? So this is the third, uh, second point, covetousness manifested within you. We have the third point, God's precious gift of enjoyment in verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Here, this is where the author Kohelet comes to this, again, a moment of clarity. He begins in verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. So here, he comes to the observation. So he's saying, hey, under the sun, if we just look at general revelation, if we observe, we'll come to the conclusion that it's good to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils. Even non-Christians should enjoy what God has given them. To enjoy their wealth, to enjoy the fruit of their work, that this is a good thing. If you spend all your time toiling and working, that you never get to enjoy the fruit of your hands. There's certain sadness in that. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Here, this is a reminder that your days are numbered. Your days are planned by God. So this is your lot, that you ought to enjoy it. Verse 19 is probably the key to this section. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. That God is the one who actually gives us the gift of the wealth and the possessions, and he also gives us the power to enjoy them. Proverbs talks about how when God gives wealth, he doesn't add sorrow to it. So all of the wealth 
without the gift of enjoyment or without the gift of contentment, this is actually a curse, not a blessing. And this gift of contentment is actually an exceedingly rare thing. And this is what the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy 6, 17, when he says, But as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That you ought to enjoy what God has given you. And so, this is part of what we do when we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That there is going to be enjoyment. There's going to be satisfaction. And even as we talk about worship on the Lord's Day as a foretaste of heaven, so also this enjoyment of what God has given you in this life, the little things, that's a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Ultimately, it's, it's not all the food, it's not all the drink, it's not all the revelries, but it's the Lamb of God. It's Jesus Christ that we're celebrating. And he finishes here in verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is not saying that God uh, gives people a case of amnesia, but rather it's saying that you and I are able to forget the sorrows and the afflictions of life when he gives us the gift of joy. That with joy... We tend to overlook, we tend to forget, we tend not to focus on the pains, the sorrows, and the afflictions. Because it is God who, who accompanies us, who carries us through those difficulties. Such that we see and we remember the joys of life. Ultimately, God, in each day of our lives, he proves himself faithful to us. That God indeed is good that he provides us with the very best. And he is one who has spared not his only begotten son. Then all the things that we need for our survival, for our satisfaction, he will give us those things most generously. Here we go to our...